listener production. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Around Town Summer Series. I'm Emma Joyce, Broadsheet's Features Editor, and every week since February, we've been chatting to all sorts of interesting Melburnians and Sydney-siders on our two Broadsheet Around Town podcasts. I host the Sydney one, and our editorial director, Katja Vaktel, hosts Melbourne's. In this special episode, we're bringing together some of our favourite conversations across the cities to share snippets of the ones that taught us something special. Whether it's how obsessed our colleagues are with chicken sandwiches, or if we'd be making a fool of ourselves at the bar when ordering a martini. And most perplexing of all, we'll find out that after all this time, we've been shaving our legs the wrong way. It's a medley of tips and tricks we didn't know we needed to hear. And my favourite, we get to take a peek inside some well-known Australians' pantries and fridges. First up is a delightful chat between Kachavaktil and powerhouse chef Jerry Mai, author of Street Food Vietnam, about the three soy sauces Jerry always has in the pantry and why we need to give more reverence to fish sauce. Okay, I want to talk about some pantry hacks and choices. And for those who don't follow Jerry on Instagram, they should because she's always posting a really great recipes and easy recipes, things that you think are going to be tough and might take you all day, but actually it might just be, you know, popping some broth on for three hours and then you've got a beautiful base for a soup. So Mm. I recommend that. But I love your supermarket shops and the little pantry hacks. Mm. So one of the ones I love best was the soy sauce explainer. And you said you accidentally sold a few soy sauces while you were in the supermarket <laughs> aisle. Look, and, and, you know, you were talking about a light sauce sauce, a dark sauce sauce, and a sweet sticky soy sauce uh, are the three things that I always have in the pantry. And then a few others for Japanese and things like that. Yeah. But, you know, a light sauce sauce is good for dipping, good for just a quick stir fry to add through. A dark sauce sauce, I use it, oh, I used them yesterday. The three, actually, the Trinity, in one, I marinated chicken thighs and I had the light sauce sauce, the dark just to enhance the colour, the sweet just for the sweetness and a bit of more colour because you can't achieve that dark sort of brazy sort of look without that dark soy sauce. So that's why we all, I always have three. So one for dipping and general stir fry, the dark sauce sauce for braisings and marinades, the ketchup or the sweet soy. The ketchup I use, manis. Yeah, the ketchup manis. I use a lot actually in all my marinades because it gives me that dark and that sweetness, that really caramel sort of flavour in replacement of brown sugar. Sometimes I don't even use brown sugar. Uh, and I absolutely love it with silky noodles, silky rice noodles in a really hot wok, a little bit of that ketchup manis on it. And then just charring it away and really getting that smoky burn on it. And and that to me is, is really nice sort of flavours in there. So would you use the light for dipping but not the other two? Like I don't use a lot of dark soy sauce and I've got it in the pantry because I've had to, I've bought it for certain recipes mm-hmm. and I don't really know how to use it in a way that's kind of spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Whereas ketchup manis, I'm kind of, I'll add to anything because I know the taste, but yeah. I would never, but I don't serve it raw. Like I always make sure it's part of something. Can, yeah. can it be a dipping? Yeah, yeah. So it took me to this age that uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Mel Melissa, had dropped off. Um, Melissa Leon? Yes. She had dropped off some Hainanese chicken for me. And I always have a red chili sauce and uh, onion and ginger, right? But she also had ketchup manis. 
And I'm like, oh, what do I do with this? And when I add it to the Hainanese chicken, it makes absolute sense, right? I think it's it's in Singapore or something. They add it to their... At the end? Yeah, so you just drizzle it on like soy sauce. Right, okay. And it just was so delicious. Now that's what we do all the time when we have Hainanese chicken. Oh, that's like a really nice... I mean, it's so... Hainanese chicken is so good anyway mm. that that just takes it up to another flavour level. It, it really does. And it adds that, like I told you, like, that really nice caramel, but that sweetness comes in as well into the rice. So we don't have Hainanese chicken now without it. So... You just mentioned as well kind of a chilli sauce. Are these things you're making yourself or are there any store-bought options for well, condiments? We just make that, them. It's really yeah. easy. Look, like, you know, the 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 red, the red sauce is uh, basically red chilli, garlic, vinegar, sugar. That's it, just a balance of that. Uh, your version of saying that's it is definitely <laughs> going to be different to my version of, of saying that's it. Um, well, it's just a balance, right? The other yeah. one I want to ask about was fish sauce. Can you just explain, though, that there's different levels of the fish sauce. Of course, there's different qualities in everything, but talk about these three different presses. So fish sauce is so important and we need to give it a little bit more love uh, and a little bit more understanding as much as olive oil. Fish sauce in Vietnam or Southeast Asia is like olive oil to the Italians and the Spanish and that, right? So we have our first press olive oil really silky, really beautiful, really sort of aromatic. It's the same with fish sauce. Fish sauce is layers of anchovies and salt, anchovies and salt, uh, traditionally sat in either bamboo or ceramic vats in the sun. Salt breaks down the anchovies. So that first press, that beautiful golden layer, is not pungent. It's aromatic. It's uh, salty with a hint of real sweetness in there because of salt from the saltiness from the, the rock salt, the sweetness from the fish itself. And then you get to the next press. So that sits for about 12 months. First press comes out. Some will put some back in and six or 12 months later, they'll, the next one will come out. That's the second press. That's the second press. So that's your second press olive oil where you would use that in uh, for frying or for uh, a little bit more harder work into it, right? And so, and then you've got your third, which is just like the bottom, the dredges of the bottom. It's really pungent. It's really strong, really salty. So there's some really good brands out there. Red Boat's an excellent brand. Mega Chef, which a lot of people have access to. You can buy Nicole's Woolies or that. And it's clarity. And when you open it, it doesn't stink. For example, when you open a squid brand fish sauce. Which is that third press. Which is that very last, like throw everything in the barrel, chuck some salt in there, she'll be right. And and people will let go, it's, it's stinky, it's pungent, it's not aromatic, it's not very appealing. But if you go and get a first press, which right, is a first press fish sauce, you can get a, a 30 degrees uh, nitrate, so the levels of nitrate in there as well. So that first press we always use for um, dipping sauces. Okay. Yeah, so I make nook mum with it. I dip, I use it on its own with chilli to dip things in because all Vietnamese need to dip. I don't know why. We just like, I just have to dip everything. And then, everything tastes better with a condiment. Yeah, yeah. And then the next one I use, which is uh, I'm use, I use yu sung, uh, which is like three dancing fish on it, and I use that to season all my food. So That's if the I make second, second, press? yeah. Okay. So I use uh, for if I make tikkor, my pork belly caramel, my, my fish, or just general marinating, I'll do that. Mm. And generally, they're the only two that I'll use. Look, I'm guilty. I've had squid, the squid bottle, in my 
in my pantry, but I've also had others. And now I'm a lot's making sense around, I make a lot of dumplings and I'll put dipping sauce together and I'll always add fish sauce. Yeah. And sometimes I think that does not taste as good as the last <laughs> one. Now that's probably also my shocking amounts. But now that I've heard you discuss it, of course, it makes sense that something is going to be sweeter and better for dipping mm. than the one that, yeah. as you said, has got everything thrown in it. Yeah. The whole kitchen sink. The whole kitchen sink's thrown in it. So stay away from those ones. You look at the ingredients, it should be just anchovies or fish and salt. Right. Some will have sugar or added stuff in it. You don't want you don't want any okay. of that stuff. Okay, I need to add ketchup manis to my next Hyannese chicken order. I love how Jerry says it's easy to make your own, and maybe it is for confident cooks, but I'm not one of them. I'm also taking notes on that fish sauce tip, getting a first press sauce for dipping. Next up is That's Amore's Giorgio Linguati, who stepped into the studio earlier this year to share how he makes his smooth and delicate ricotta by hand in Melbourne. He shares the three cheeses he'll always have in his fridge. I have a particular predilection for your buffalo ricotta, which I have been known to eat in one sitting, one of those punnets. They're not one kilo punnets, but they're big punnets. Tell us about why... I might be addicted to the buffalo ricotta. What What is it about the flavours in your buffalo ricotta versus a regular ricotta uh, that I and so many find appealing? Ricotta was uh, one of the first products we put on the market with pride difference. Um, the, the reality, once I learned to make in cheese, because I learned here, and I learned how to make it different and make it gourmet, my goal was always to make something gourmet and to make the people have a wow when you try the cheese. The ricotta was very easy to be compared with the other, with the other ricotta because the ricotta before was just a cheese to be cooked with, often grainy texture and so and very and very hard. And when we come up with our ricotta delicata first and then the buffalo ricotta was smooth and delicate. You can enjoy by himself on a toast. On a pasta. So good on toast. Absolutely. And the um, buffalo milk ricotta is unique. First of all, because our buffalo milk in Australia is unique. The buffalo farm we we we, we get the milk from is a been um a un- is a unique in the world. There is a buffalo farm coming from crossing three big bre- uh, breed of buffalo. One is the water buffalo from Northern Territory. There is being crossed with the Indian buffalo, the water and uh, the Italian buffalo. And the flavor of the milk is unique. The buffalo milk ricotta we're using, we don't have any additive, but it's not just on the buffalo milk. All the uh, Samoritian product, we don't, we don't standardize the milk, so we not touch, do nothing to the milk past, apart pasteurizing the milk. So we gently pasteurizing, and the milk is changing with the seasons. Mm. It depends what's the variety of grass in the season, what's the the weather. So the milk changing flavor and nutrient, and, and, and we're just doing, adjusting our recipe. So you found milk, you found cheeses, they change a little bit the flavor from season to season. It's normal, it's artisan. This might be a ridiculous question to ask someone like yourself. If you had to have three cheeses in your fridge at all times, what would they be? What are the essentials? And you can say to me, Katja, there needs to be 10. But for those of us who aren't going through that much cheese, what are the, what are the essentials you think that should always be in someone's pantry or fridge? Grated cheese can be Parmigiano, Australian Parmesan, or something you can put on pasta, on soup, on, on meatball if you make your meatball, or, um, and then ricotta. 
Again, for the same reason, you can put on toast, you can put on the pasta, mix together with uh, pasta, or you can have on its own. Uh, and then what's the third cheese? In my fridge, probably will be stracciatella. And um, I will put also mozzarella. You can buy your cheeses at grocers around the city, whether it's somewhere like Toscano's, which really focuses on local producers, uh, Leaf, the high-end supermarket, Gumtree. I mean, it's very prevalent everywhere. I think it would surprise a lot of people to know that those tubs of that Samore is a family business. We're sticking to a theme here that catches on a roll. She quizzes one of Melbourne's best butchers, Gary McBean, who's supplied meat to places such as Attica and Hector's Deli, about the three meats he always keeps in his fridge. What does one of the city's best butchers always have in his fridge? Always scotch fillet and some eye fillet, because eye fillet's forgiving. You can do anything with eye fillet. It's always tender, like if you need to do a little quick uh, stroganoff or a stir-fry where you've got lots of other flavours coming into it and you're just after a nice tender piece of meat. Um, I've always got like a couple of cryback pieces. Of so if we went back to your house now, there'd always be an eye fillet in I there. Eye fillet, scotch fillet, and there is actually always mince. <laughs> always mince. You can do so much with mince. I know. I've got yeah. bags of it in my freezer as well. Just what kind? Beef or uh, Well, I've always got beef mince, yeah. whether it's for burgers or, like, like I said, like a, a, a bolognese or... Um, It's just a big pinch you can do anything with. I swear Catch is just very hungry when she's in the recording studio, but we do love hearing the tips on what to buy to elevate our lunches. Speaking of, it turns out Broadsheet's national editor, Michael Harry, is at least 50% chicken sandwich at this point. He's obsessed with perfecting a recipe for the perfect chicken sandwich mix, from the bread and the mayo to any accoutrements. And I think he would hate how I make mine. I'm willing to stick my neck out and say this is my area of expertise, genuinely, but, but is chicken too. sandwich. So and how, you too. So it's a, let's see who comes out as the expert at the end. I think it might be you. I think I'm more broadly just a chicken obsessee. And that's what's so funny is both of us in our friendship groups, the running gag is that you chicken sandwiches, me chicken, kind of is one of our personality traits. <laughs> yes. I don't know what that says about us. I know. It's it's a little bit odd. But yeah, I'm known for bringing like a, a platter or a tray of chicken sandwiches, like triangles, to, to any event that I can possibly muster just so I can like eat the mix and well, like make them and, and eat extra. Well, I, you, you can know. come to any event with me anytime because I'm always <laughs> up for a triangle and I'm the same. I hover next to either the little slivers of rectangle ones or the points, if that's what's sitting on a picnic table or that's what, you know, a caterer is going around with, I'm following them. It's always the best thing. And it's, you can't just take one at a time. One must take. A stack. A stack. Yeah. One of the reasons I've become so obsessed with chicken sandwiches is they're so easy to stuff up. Like when you've had a sad chicken sandwich Mm. without enough moisture and oomph or, or the elements aren't all there. It's annoying because you remember the good ones. The good ones. Yeah. Wh- why do you love them? Where did you fall? Where did this love affair begin? <laughs> Look, I, I was thinking back and I, I used to work at a catering company called Peter Rollins, which like ha- does a lot of fancy weddings and the Grand Prix and all sorts of things Lots like of that. Lots of events around Lots of events. And they are known for their chicken sandwich, but I didn't know this at the time. But yeah, so in the course of my uni job as a cater waiter, I'd be handing around these chicken sandwiches, just looking at them and like salivating. <laughs> And then often there would be like tons left over at the end of these functions. And I just began to really love that part of the job. Did you get to take them home? I think unofficially, no. (laughs) But officially, yes, I was was super into them. And then it's just become a thing. I've always looked out for them. If I see one on the menu, I probably will order it. I'm the same. And I perfected making them. I do think that the Peter Rowland sandwich, I'm just going to go out and say, I, I, 
I think it's, it's canon. The, I think it's the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's a benchmark. It's so good. Apparently, I think I read somewhere once that at the Grand Prix or the races, one of those events where Peter Rowland is catering, they'll make sixty thousand. Yeah. Like they'll plate up sixty thousand and they'll go. So many. Yeah. Actually, was lucky enough to meet the Peter Rowland, who's still kicking around, and he yeah, like sixty years old. It's almost yeah. sixty years old that place, <laughs> yeah. which is. But amazing. I was like, "Tell me everything," and he's like, "Look, you always put in a lot more mayo than you think you need. Like, it's got to be gloopy when you make these sandwiches." But I don't know if he was telling me all the all, all the true secrets Do because was- their bread is very fluffy, and I've I've tried yeah. to kind of. It's often easy to go soggy. Yes. But Why? should we talk about some of the elements of, Let's of talk the grilled chicken sandwich? You- I mean, you've talked about the idea that there's a Venn diagram of deliciousness. <laughs> yes. And I really appreciate the seriousness with which you take the assembly and building yeah. blocks of the chicken sandwich. What are those? So there are four key elements, I think. The first is the chicken, obviously. So look, I like a poached and a diced chicken because I don't like any weird bits, like any flabby skin or cartilage or anything like that, which is the gristle, terrifying. The gristle is... Yeah. You don't want that in a sandwich. I actually love, I love brown chicken if that's on a plate right? where I can see what I'm eating. But in a sandwich, I'm the same. I Give me a poached chicken breast. Yes. And that leads to the mix, the mayo mix. Mm. It's essentially a carrier for the mayonnaise, let's be honest. So <laughs> the if whole it, sandwich. If it's, a, if it's a store-bought mayo, I like Hellman's. I like Hellman's too. I also like real food. Best foods. Best foods? Yeah, best foods okay. is pretty good. Do you remember Tommy? Tommy, yes. It's like a Dutch. I don't know I if it's on shelves German, anymore. But, yeah, it's, it's like a European. European. Yeah. yeah, no, I know that one. Yeah. It's a, a, maybe a sweeter one, but you just don't want praise or anything like that that's too viscous. I it do needs feel, to be whole egg. Don't you feel like also these days everyone uses Kewpie? Yeah. Kewpie I love, but I don't know. I'm I'm happier to go with something a bit yeah, richer. Okay, that's, and you're hearing it from the experts, so yeah. that would be... Yeah, and if I'm making it, I like to put in a little sour cream because that makes it creamy but less oily. But um, Did you just come up with that? Yourself? No, it's it's. I've read basically every article that you can about chicken sandwich <laughs> making from like overseas to where you've definitely. I can't believe <laughs> yeah. I thought. I can't believe I thought I might compete with you yeah. on the expertise here because you've definitely outplayed True. me. Yeah. So you've got your chicken, you've got your mayo mix, uh, and which has got to be kind of smooth but chunky, and then you've got your herbs, which kind of boost mm. up the mix. So yeah. chives is obviously number chive. one. Maybe some flat leaf parsley, maybe tarragon, maybe lemon thyme, maybe dill if you're feeling fancy. Ooh. I don't know, but you don't want them all. Maybe just one. Okay. Um, and judiciously, you don't want to overwhelm things and make it too like herby because yes. then it's yeah. another thing. Where you're getting the texture of the herb instead of the chicken and the mayo. Yeah, too much. Yeah. And then finally the bread, obviously. Mm. So look, I mean, the, the OG is just the really fluffy sandwiched loaf. White bread. White bread, yeah. but good white bread. Baker's Delight, that's a good one. Yep. Or rolls, focaccias, ciabattas, they're also good. But, you know, maybe not the original. I think you just, in the way that you said this, the sandwich is really just a vessel for mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's what, like, the bread almost has to kind of disappear. Yeah, in exactly. My mind. If it's overpowering or hard to eat, yeah, or too, too crusty, crunch- too crunchy, crunchy, it's yeah. it's hard. Yeah, yeah. Now, but, let's- but also one thing that holds it all together is butter as well. Oh. Often people maybe think you don't need butter because it's so mayoy, but uh, the true genius chicken sandwiches have a lot of butter in them. I remember when Peter Rowland finally released his recipe mm. after you know decades of people begging. <laughs> yeah. it, there was butter in that recipe. It's the butter. Yeah. yeah. I think he says unsalted, but I like salty. What about things like celery and pine nuts? Yeah. See, now there's a lot of newfangled chicken sandwiches around these days. And I think a lot of them are feeling like they need to be extra fancy and, and leaning into these accoutrements. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Oh, I feel like, I wonder if it's new. I feel like growing up, 
there was like pine nuts. There was a pine nut chicken Ooh, sandwich yeah. period. I like a pine nut. Yeah. And I don't it, mind a nut. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I was saying to you before the podcast, I'm coming around to the celery with for like a bit the of celery crunch. As well. yep. I used to hate any kind of vegetable in it, but celery is okay. Yeah. An absolute no no is sultanas or grapes okay. or apple. Now, no. hold on. So <laughs> I think when you say that in the abstract, of course, that mm. makes, but, but then you're also, does that mean you don't like a chicken Waldorf? Because yeah, it's a actually chicken Waldorf, which has. Mm. The walnut and is it the grape and the sultana or one of them? Definitely got Sometimes the apple in it, maybe. A, yeah. Yeah. Or the coronation chicken has the sultanas Ooh, in it. Oh, I love a but coronation like a curry chicken. Curry vibe. Not bad, but again, just not canon. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. But uh, I think my tastes are becoming a bit more sophisticated because I had the <laughs> morning market chicken sandwich the other day, which has apple in it. And I was like, if I'm not told, I, I was like, what, what's going on in this mix? I was like, oh, it's got apple in it. But hey, that, it was really good. The morning market chicken sandwich. Is a beast. Yeah. It is the most enormous. Uh, and I love a chicken sandwich, but yeah. I, I could not actually get my mouth around it. It's so <laughs> filthy. One of the conversations that surprised me this year was with Catcher and Louis Body co founders Rebecca Harding and Ingrid Kesser. Along with learning about their new razor and body care brand, Rebecca gave us a tip on how best to shave our hair. It's an unexpected life hack, if you will. I learned something from one of the interviews with you, Beck, about how to shave. Yes. Which is that most of us shave against the grain, but that's not how you're meant to start. So can you just give us a bit of a tip on, on the correct way? Yeah. It's, it sounds really strange, but um, we tell people to shave with the hair growth, so shave downwards and then shave against the grain. Um, shaving with the hair growth trims the hair down so then it's all sort of the same length and then it means that when you do go against the um the hair growth which can be irritating mm. you get a closer shave it's even and you have to go over it less times so less trauma to the skin if you will no i'm going to be trying it when i read that yeah. I was like, oh i have been doing it wrong <laughs> all these years you'll get a closer shave it's yeah. It's pretty amazing. Did, did that just come because you guys have now tested so much or that was <laughs> that was information given to you by people in the industry who said, no, this is the way to get the closer one? No, that was us shaving our legs a lot. A lot. <laughs> there have been a few big trends this year, especially in the world of drinks, including the return of an 80s icon, the Japanese slipper. It's also been a big year for the martini, and broadsheet contributor Callum McDermott wrote an article about why we're seeing so many creative variations on the classic cocktail. So we invited Cal into the Sydney studio to tell us about the bars doing a classic martini really well, but also to interrogate those terms we've all heard, like wet, dry, shaken, stirred and dirty, and whether we've been making some key mistakes when we order our drink in a bar. Are we doing anything wrong when we order a martini? Are we making any silly mistakes? I think one thing that sort of resonated a lot when I was talking to them was that people can tell when you don't have a clue what any of the martini terms mean. Yeah, okay. And um, it's better to just, you know, profess your ignorance and ask to be spoken to in plain terms. And a lot of people don't. I didn't know what a wet martini was really until I sort of started writing this article and I really enjoy martinis. So I think if you don't really know what any of the words mean, if you don't know what with a twist means, if you don't know what dirty means, how dirty, how wet, how dry, just explain what sort of flavour profile you want and you'll be guided in the right direction. If we were going to go for a martini, 
right now, where would we go and what would we order? I think if you really want to have a serious martini, you should make your way over to maybe Sammy in the rocks. Uh, from memory, there are, there are mini martinis, there are classic martinis. There's a whole range of signatures on their new cocktail menu, which are clearly martini inspired. Um, so personally, I've had a couple from there that I really enjoy. And this might be a recency bias, but um, Love Tilly Divine is doing a mini martini happy hour every day now. And I had a couple last night and I uh, really enjoyed it. I know martinis are having a moment right now, but I'm still a sucker for a well-made Negroni. One of Sydney's award-winning gin makers, Esther Spirits, makes a perfectly balanced pre-made version. When co-founder Felix Clark dropped by earlier this year, he explained what makes the perfect Negroni for him. For me, it's about balance, and I think that's what we've tried to emulate and, and dictate in our bottled Negroni that we use. Um, I think too many people are just searching for that really bitter edge on a Negroni, whereas I think it's got to be that perfect combination of sweet uh, from the vermouth and the bitterness from the Campari and obviously that really strong underlying flavour of juniper and, and, and dry spice from, from the gin. So as with food or, or any other cocktail or anything else, it's, it's about that balance. You want, you want that beautiful sweet entry from the, from the vermouth and then you want that, that gin and, and beautiful flavour compounds coming through from the spirit in the middle and then that sort of clenching bitterness from the Campari on the back of the palate. Part of the joy of hosting this podcast is getting to know the ins and outs of what goes into making our favourite drinks and snacks. For Kachavactyl, she's a big fan of Melbourne's Mile End Bagels. In her chat with co-founder Ben Vaughan, the pair share their preferred flavour pairings and we discover why the poppy seed bagels are underappreciated and worth the fear of getting seeds in your teeth. So what is your, is there one that you have that's a go-to? You've got so many different fillings. Yeah. I love, I'm a salmon, yeah. you know, I love a salmon yeah. and tomato yeah. cream cheese gal, but then, Same. you know, if I'm feeling a bit like living on the edge, <laughs> I'll go for the, ch- I mean, me and an old colleague, our old uh, Melbourne editor, when we used to like not be able to decide, we'd kind of halve. Yeah. So we'd get the chicken with yeah. the barbecue sauce, which yeah. is so good. Yeah. Then we get a regular, yeah. you know, the, or the classic, I guess, in yeah. the salmon. Yeah. What about you? What's I, your? I still, yeah. I, I've always loved salmon. I love seafood and smoked salmon. I love the avocado and lemon oil with it. That's a good it's one. It's really good. Yeah. Um, but And what kind of topping? <laughs> Because I feel like that's the bagel itself. Well, for example, like my partner is a hardcore everything bagel man, yeah. Yeah. and and wouldn't and just isn't even really interested if that's sold out. Yeah. Whereas I like a little sesame number. Yeah. Uh, I think the people who have voted. Everything is definitely the most popular. We two thirds of the bagels we sell and produce are all everything bagels. Okay. Um, but I think and everything bagel. Just for again for yeah. those who are yeah. like, what's in the, what's in what's the in what's the in the everything bagel? Yeah. Um, everything. No, uh, sesame seeds, poppy seeds, onion, garlic, and some salt and pepper. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, they're pretty good. Yeah, it's just so savoury and crunchy and it satisfies, it goes with everything. It does. Do you know what I mean? Even if you think it doesn't, it really it does. does. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, s- the poppy and the sesame go really well with certain fillings. Okay. So I think the salmon and poppy go really well together. Okay. Poppy seed with the salmon is great. Whereas That's a sesame, good little hack. Sesame and chicken salad's great. This is good to know. Yeah. Because I'm not doing that. Or your sweets. So like you put jam or a sweet cream cheese, always with sesame. Okay. Yeah. Don't be mixing up your everything bagels Who's, with that. I feel like the poppy is the one that gets sometimes left. left. Yeah. 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 I think it's, it's because it's, it's a shame. It's a real shame because I think it's one of the best bagels. Yeah. Why um, is that? So the poppy seeds, uh, they bake different because of the seed. 
they heat up really hot mm. because I don't know they're more maybe more concentrated in the oil in the poppy seed. It it cooks the whole bagel really well, so you get this really good crunch, but it's still really soft on the inside. So it's really pillowy. I'd actually that would be the, my go-to. Yeah. I just get concerned about I'm going to have a million seeds in my teeth. It's it's aesthetics. You know what I mean? It's yeah. going to be one of those things where I'm in a meeting in the afternoon and everyone's like, oh, God, yeah. okay, yeah. how how do we tell her about the poppy seeds in yeah. her teeth? It's a PR risk. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> Finally, to round out our special episode on the tips and tricks we've learned from some of Australia's top chefs, butchers, gin makers, writers and small business owners – we have a menu hack from Sydney chef Joel Bennett, who recently opened Bondi's Burger Park with the guys behind Fishbowl. It's been a smash hit with locals, and when Joel came into the Sydney studio to tell us about it, we learned there's an off-menu burger that is the one to order on your next visit. So Burger Park's going to have a concise menu of four burgers. Mm. What are those burgers going to be? Yeah, so we've got a beautiful grass-fed Angus beef burger with kind of, you know, tomato, lettuce, onion, and then add-ons of house-baked, salt-baked beetroot, pickled pineapple that we do in-house. And then we've got a grilled chicken burger, a fried chicken burger with like a fermented chili mayo, and the classic fish burger that we kind of created our own cult following for, which is, yeah, crumb barramundi, like a green goddess tartare and shredded iceberg. Again, the addition of chili is a no-brainer. You definitely have because since probably the weekend, mm. it's been blowing up over Instagram. Yeah. People have been really loving yeah. the images that you've put out there. Yeah. There's one particular burger where you've got these anchovies like, mm. dripping down the side. <laughs> yeah. Can you describe to me what that particular burger's got? Yeah, so that burger is kind of, a, I guess, a love child of a burger that the boys had on a recent trip to the to the states and you know a burger that I had in mind so yeah it's it is the it is the fish burger with the addition of olisagasti anchovies which we're umming and ahhing about but it did definitely give that you know beautiful umami saltiness addition to the burger but yeah we're still toying around with that one do you think the menu will change in kind of the coming weeks as you see what favorites people mm. have or if people are kind of really asking for the anchovies mm. yeah i definitely think we could um we're pretty set on the four burgers. We are definitely going to be running specials pretty much every weekend. And also, funnily enough, the Naked Burger has been quite a hit over the weekend, which is obviously bunless and we kind of serve it with a kind of open salad style, but also really healthy alternative. Now, the owners of this, and you're one of the owners, mm. have called it a no-fuss environment. What do you mean by that and what does the space look like? It's really quite clean. It's almost like a diner style, but elevator. We've got some really cool green milk crates that we've brought in and you know, low style seating out, out the front and inside. Um, and I guess the no fuss thing is like, it's, it's really direct. There's four burgers, there's a few add-ons, there's chips and there's a slaw. You took some time out from working at Fish Shop mm. to work on your cookbook mm. and it's called Food by Joel Bennett's. Yes. So if people are not familiar with the cookbook, yeah. what's involved or, or what recipes are you sharing with us? That was an incredible process and, um, I love photography, so I actually shot the whole book and, and wrote everything myself and had a really, really small team work on the publishing and self-published it. With that comes, you know, a lot of hardship as well. But yeah, within that book, there's, I think, 68 recipes that take inspiration from my time in China when I lived there, my time in Japan, um, you know, traveling Southeast Asia with my parents, but then also food that I grew up on, food that I've tried, and it's, it's really a real pulled back version of of some cookbooks out there it's really quite simple to follow um the recipes you know average a five-step uh process so it's a real 
Yeah, good one. There's a burger in there that looks kind of yeah. very similar <laughs> yeah. to pot, to one that might be a yeah, park. yeah. What is that particular burger in the book? Um, so I think that is a yeah crumbs barramundi mm-hmm. with um, like the shredded the shredded lettuce and I think it's a sriracha spike tartare sauce. So it's got like jalapenos, capers, cornichons, red onion, parsley, and then sriracha for the hit. I think those elements just worked incredibly well. I think I shot that recipe just before autumn. So it was like the weather for it. Um, yeah, no, that's a banger. Do you have Very a favorite good. from the menu so far? I do. I mean, honestly, like we made it this morning and it's the double the double smash that if you know, you know. So if you know, come down and, and tell us that you know, and then you can have one and tell me what you think. I'm telling everyone now that the double smash <laughs> is what you go and order. It's off menu for some crazy reason. And it's also Joel's favorite. And that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Broadsheet Around Town's summer series. We'll be back in the studio soon. Have a lovely summer break. Chat soon.